Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following is the account of Captain Collins, a now-missing member of the Passgate Rangers, and the leader of the now-defunct Ranger Squadron 3, commonly known as the Nightcrawlers. The following document is being made public under the auspices of Project Black Feather, in an attempt to bring to light the dangerous and irresponsible activities of one Godwin Sinclair and his ring of associates operating out of Ravenhead, Alberta. The Archivist Two townspeople went missing last week. We found one of the bodies just off the South Slope Road a few days ago, mauled all to hell, so much so we couldn't even tell which of the two missing people it was. The other one still hasn't been found yet, but with the reports of half howls, half human screams from the edge of town, I'm guessing we're not going to find him. Sinclair and his acolytes think of some kind of lycanthrope, or monstrous animal that's left the forest behind. Command told us to get ready either way. We're heading out for the ranging tomorrow, and plan to be back within a week. I'll be leading the night crawlers up the western side of the valley. The headless men will have the east, and the iron sides will be going up the center before both of us, trying to flush whatever this thing is outwards towards one of us. Orders are to capture, but we have freedom to kill if capture is untenable. I'm no stranger to hunting down monsters at this point, but the night before a ranging is always the worst. You never know who's coming back, or what state they'll be in. Sinclair sent us a nice rich dinner and some wine from his personal stores, though. I suppose it's nice, but it almost feels like a last meal before an execution. The team is excited, and I suppose I will be too once I'm in the field and adrenaline is flowing. It'll be the last night I get to sleep in a real bed for the next week, or forever maybe. Can't wait to sleep on the forest floor and wake up stiff and cold with pine needles in my ass bedtime. We were up before the sun, armed and kitted within an hour, and all three teams were assembled in the yard, where the Master Ranger met us and briefed us again on the situation. Remember, Ironsides are to stay ahead of the entire line. Keep noisy and keep loud. We want this thing flushed towards the edges of the valley where the flanks can pick it up. Captains keep frequent contact with one another, and don't break formation. If you can drive this thing across the lay, Collins... You and the nightcrawlers will go on alone while the others hold the riverbank in case it loops back. 
Understood, the old ranger said. Got it, I called, adding my voice to the chorus of acceptance that arose from the assembled group. Good, now get out of here. I want a report from each captain every night. The three teams marched out of the yard and reached Ravenhead after almost an hour. We passed through the town on the way to the South Slope Road, and a few of the townspeople who were just beginning to stir waved at us or called good luck out of their windows. The headless men broke off first to hold the east, and it was only us and the Ironsides until they broke off a few hours later. Being the furthest from the staging ground, we were the last to reach position and spread out into a lone, staggered line. This close to Ravenhead, the Passgate Forest has been cut back, leaving only rolling hills of grass and a few scattered assortments of trees and scrub. Ahead of us, as we spread out across the valley, loomed the tall and ancient trees of Passgate. Pine trees grew taller here than they did anywhere else in the world, but that's probably the least strange thing you'll find in this valley. Nightcrawlers in position over, I spoke into my radio. Ironsides in position over, crackled a voice from the radio. Headless men ready to range over, came a second voice. Ironsides moving out, give us an hour and get walking. I switched to the radio channel for my squadron and told them we had an hour to kill, so hold position and keep an eye on the tree line. I set my backpack down on the ground and propped my rifle against it. I pulled a cigarette out from one of my jacket pockets and lit it, the iron smoke filling my lungs and fully waking me up. I looked down the line and saw the smoke rising off a few other cigarettes. I shook my legs out and sat down on the grass, leaning against my bag. Even though I've been in them for years, there's still something off-putting about the Passgate Forest. Well, it's literally home to monsters, so I suppose that's a stupid thing to say. The trees themselves, though, the ground, the bushes, everything is just... off somehow. I've never been great with words, but I guess the forest just gives off a bad vibe, huh? Well, whatever. This is a ranging log, not a journal. Who cares what I think? We sat for an hour smoking and checking our guns over when the call came from the Ironsides to start moving. The captain of the headless men and I both confirmed we were moving, and I singled my rangers forward. I was on the far right of the line, and we were spread out so that I could just make out the ranger to my left, enough to cover extra ground, but not too far away if one of us found something. It's slow going when you're trying to flush something out, especially when it could be some sort of man-eating beast, so we weren't covering much ground. The whole first day passed uneventfully. One of my rangers found a footprint that turned out to just be a regular wolf. One of the headless men shot a deer accidentally, living up to their call sign, and I could hear the clamor of the ironsides even from an hour ahead of us their shouting and banging echoing through the dark forest as they tried to flush an angry monster right onto us. We each paired up with the man to our left and lit a fire, sleeping in shifts through the night so we could keep watch along with a line of fires running through the woods, which would hopefully keep our prey to the north of us. Sleep is easy to find when you've been walking with a full pack all day, but hard to rouse yourself out of. I had the first watch, so I at least had the chance to sleep until sunrise, when my partner nudged me awake with his boot and handed me a mess tin of eggs, bread, and bacon. I ate quickly and washed it down with some of the coffee that had been boiling over the fire. Warm and awake, we kicked our fire out and covered up our tracks, spacing back out to our positions in the line. 
The voice of the Ironsides captain echoed from my radio, instructing all squads to begin moving. I passed the message down the line and we began walking again. Even at the height of midday, not much light penetrates through the canopy of Passgate, leaving us in a largely dusky state of lighting. We called a halt around one o'clock, which allowed us to eat a quick lunch before we kept moving. It had been a few hours when I noticed that all of a sudden the forest had gone quiet. The Ironsides weren't making a racket anymore. Before I had a chance to think about it, a voice spoke from my radio. All units halt. Ironsides has potential contact. Ready weapons. Over. Nightcrawlers read you. Over. Headless men holding. Over. The forest was dead silent aside from the clack of rifles being readied that drifted towards me from down the line. Even the birds and the critters of the forest were silent. We're dealing with something bad, I whispered to myself. The silence didn't last long, as a moment later the forest erupted with the sounds of gunfire far ahead. I immediately dropped behind the trunk of a nearby tree and peeked out towards the sound of the firefight going on. Unlike us, the Ironsides carried automatic weapons and way more ammunition. They were the heavy hitters of the Ranger units, and you could hear why. The blaze of guns lasted for maybe a minute before the forest fell back to an eerie silence. Target is moving north towards the lay. Over, Captain Ironside said through the radio. Did you get visual? Over, Captain Headless replied. Barely. Whatever it is, it's big. Bipedal, humanoid, dark fur. Nothing more than that. Moves damn fast. Ironside's in pursuit. Both of you move your units up closer in case it doubles back. Over. Copy. Over. I said, and radioed to my team to make a double pace through the woods. We set off on a light jog forward, guns at the ready, and packs growing heavier with every step. It took two hours before we were in a position to the left of the Ironsides line, and the headless men fell into position only a few minutes after us. A halt was called, and I radioed the Ironsides captain. How's the tracking? Over. It's still moving north as far as we can tell. Too late to pursue. Let's get a line of fires going across the valley and make sure it stays north of us. Extra caution tonight, everyone. Over. I relayed the message to my team, and we built our fires extra bright that night. I presumed that everyone would be as on edge as I was, but if they were, the ranger I was camping with didn't show a hint of fear. He fried up a quick dinner, and we ate in silence, ears alert to every small sound that came from the woods. I slept first that night, with my rifle loaded right next to me, and my knife held close to my chest. Not that a knife ever did much good against the things we usually faced, but it made me feel better all the same. I was jolted awake in the middle of the night by something that sounded like a human imitating the howling of a dog. It was piercingly loud but seemed to be coming from a good distance off. The ranger on watch was already crouched, rifle at his shoulder, aimed off into the forest. He motioned for me to keep quiet and still, so I slowly, carefully picked my rifle off the ground and quickly scanned our perimeter. A moment later, the forest burst to life with the sound of a roar, a scream, and a clip of bullets being fired. My heart began to pound. The adrenaline was coursing through my blood, and I realized what I loved about being a ranger, the thrill. I and my partner stood still as stone, guns trained towards the source of the sound, ears trained on everything else. After the initial commotion, all we could make out in the night was the sound of something crashing through the underbrush far away in the distance, followed by a deep howl half an hour later. One of our fires got hit, no casualties, one injured. Target still heading north, over. 
Ironsides, Captain barked through the radio, sounding out of breath. Get a good look at it? Over, I asked. Injured Ranger says seven to eight feet tall. Humanish, big teeth. Over. Nothing else? Over. He swears he emptied a clip right into it. We should be able to follow the blood come the morning. Over. I read. Over. I set the radio down next to my blanket, and the other ranger nodded at me slightly. You got two more hours, he said as he laid his rifle across his lap and leaned back against a tree to resume his watch. I nodded in response and faded back into sleep. I had the last shift of the watch and sat for four hours waiting for the sun to come up, gazing off into the darkness of the night and occasionally feeding the fire. I could see the lights of the other fires in the line shining through the darkness like distant fireflies. For some reason, something about being in the wilderness just makes me feel so... empty. Not in a bad way, but more like emotions just flow in and out of me like a gentle creek without leaving a trace. Was I scared? I don't know. There's fear in me, that's for sure. But it almost feels like it isn't mine. It's like it's the fear of some ancient forgotten human who lived and hunted in the depths of the woods centuries ago. Like an instinctual fear that exists because I'm human. So there's fear there, but it's not mine. The line got underway right at sunrise, all three units pushing forward at a reduced pace. Captain Ironsides was right. The beast was bleeding, not a lot, but enough to track it. It was moving quickly towards the lay, and we reached the banks of the river just before the sun went down. The lay divides the Blackfeather Valley in half, somewhere around the middle. It's a freezing cold river, well, more like a stream, that tumbles out of the mountains and bisects the valley, cutting the Passgate Forest in the south from the Lake Wash Forest in the north. The rangers have tried building small bridges across the lay in the past, but every time we do, something smashes it to bits. Rangers sent to guard the bridges never come back, so we gave up years ago and settled for fording the river when we need to cross. Captain's Ironsides, Headless, and I met at the center of the ranger line for a meeting before we proceeded. We all sat around a blazing fire, drinking the crisp glacial water of the lay from camp mugs. I say dogman or werewolf, Ironside said. Sounds enough like one, Headless shrugged. Your man never got a good look, I asked. No, but the description is close enough. Besides, the howling after the attack is enough for me, Ironsides replied. The crawlers are ready to go over, I assume, Headless asked. Always, I nodded. The thing is wounded. I doubt it'll be that much of a problem, Ironside said. I saw the blood trail. The wound looks superficial. Regardless, we'll rest up and go over in the morning. Can you two split all the watches between yourselves? I asked, getting to my feet and sticking my hands over the fire. The two other captains nodded. We move at dawn. I'll radio reports by the hour, I said as I returned to my rangers and filled them in, telling them all to get a good sleep and eat well. As I curled up on my blanket next to a fire, I watched through half-shut eyes as the Ironside and Headless sentries began to patrol up and down the south bank of the lay. I fell into a fitful sleep that night, dreaming of my limbs being torn off by the jaws of some huge and horrific beast. I woke just before dawn, sweating like a pig. I splashed my face in the lay and readied my gear before I made my rounds and woke all the other night crawlers. All twelve of us were gathered at the point where the blood trail entered the lay checking rifles and tightening our pack straps and clothes. Captains Ironside and Headless wished us all good luck, and we splashed across the river ford, 
plunging into the tree line of the lake wash. Three others and I formed the main group, while two rangers served as a vanguard, running ahead of us, two as a rearguard in the event we were followed, and a pair of two far off in the bush on our left and right. We spent the entire day on a small game trail. The blood trail had begun to fade, but the prints of the beast were still noticeable. Huge loping strides and massive paws with claws on the end, something that walked sometimes on two feet and sometimes on four. As the sun was beginning to make its downward descent, the two rangers in the vanguard radioed in that there was a ranger station not too far ahead that we should be able to make just after sunset. We figured it would be nice to sleep on bunks and under a roof, so we decided to press on. Fully stocked and no signs of the beasts were the report from the van. The two flanking pairs returned to our main body, and the rear guard made double time to catch up with us, so ten rangers made the station at the same time, about an hour after sunset. Damn, said the man to my right. Yeah, I murmured. In front of us, the two rangers who had been scouting ahead were laying slumped on the ground in front of the station in pools of their own blood. Guts and viscera had been strewn around the grounds, and one of the rangers was now a head and a leg, less of a man, than he had been that morning. Not even a shot fired or a radio call, another ranger said. Secure the building, nobody outside until sunrise. Two guards for the night at all times, decide the shifts yourself, I said, turning to the unit behind me. We'll bury them in the morning. We filed inside and found the inside of the station untouched. It was a long log cabin filled with bunks and supplies, which had a ladder leading to an observation tower. We had built a number of these, scattered throughout the lake wash and the pass gate, but none were ever permanently occupied, typically just being places for us to restock and rest for a night when outranging. Nobody spoke that night. The station was dead silent aside from men tossing in their beds or the occasional snoring. We rose at dawn, buried the two dead rangers, and radioed the report back across the river. We searched the camp by the light of the sun, but could only find one set of beast tracks leading still further north. The prints caked with drying blood. How did one of these things, wounded, get a drop on two rangers? Someone asked. I don't know, I replied. But nobody separates from the main group now. We all stick together. Be ready to fire at any time. We took our hats off and saluted the two freshly dug graves before we began making our way north again, hot on the tracks of the beast. A sense of apprehension was growing inside me as the day wore on, and the forest remained still and silent, with still no sign of the beast aside from the trail we were following. We reached the Blackwater Lake at nightfall, the lake which the lake wash gets its name from, and camped uneventfully on its quiet shore. I could sense the men were growing uneasy the further we ranged from the lay, but nobody dared voice a complaint. When we woke that morning, there were nine of us left. One of the sentries had vanished in the night. There were a few footprints at the edge of the camp, but they led straight into the black water and never emerged again. The old lady of the lake got him, one of the men said over breakfast, but none of us replied or even acknowledged that anything had been spoken. We packed and moved on casting a few lingering furtive glances at the glassy, still surface of the black water, and continued north. Halfway through the day, we had broken out of the northern tree line of the lake wash and were on the north slopes of the valley. The trail carried on, and it only took us an hour to find what we were looking for. Well, he made it pretty damn easy for us to find him, came the voice of a ranger from behind me. 
all of us had our attention fixed forward at the gaping cave mouth in front of us. Hot air was drifting out of it, and blood and bones were scattered everywhere by the entrance, which seemed to have a layer of powdered bones coating the ground like a giant, horrible welcome mat. All right, who's going in first? I asked, and the men behind me laughed. Screw capturing the thing. There were explosives back at the station. I say we level the whole cave, one of the rangers said, and the others muttered and mumbled their agreement. For once I agree with you all. I don't think we're capturing this thing. I shrugged. Max, you and me will go back for the explosives. The rest of you stay here and make sure it doesn't leave the cave. The men shifted uneasily and looked around at one another, hearing that most were meant to stay behind. There's seven of you and one of it, and you know exactly where it is. Don't worry about it. We're shooting fish in a barrel at this point, I said, as I reshouldered my pack and motioned for Max to follow me. Double time. We should be back in a day. Max and I set off, following our trail back to the station. We had entered the lake wash again, and were a few hours away from the cave when my blood turned to ice as I heard the distant sounds of shouting, shooting, and howling. Max looked at me and I locked eyes with him. I stopped and raised my radio. This is Captain Crawler. Does anyone read me? Status report. Over. The radio burst to life with the sound of screaming, hissing static, and gunshots. The man on the radio was yelling something incoherent at me of which I could only make out one word, the one word I hadn't wanted to hear. Pack! The line went dead and I attempted twice more to radio to the unit, to no response. Max was staring at me, stone-faced, silently gripping and relaxing his rifle over and over. What do we do? he asked. I stopped and thought for a moment. I looked back to where we had come from and then back down the trail we were following. Same orders. We get the explosives and bury them. I ordered Max to dump any extra weight from his pack, and I did the same, throwing random equipment that I didn't think would come in handy onto the ground. We set off at a jog back down the trail again, thankful for the slightly lighter packs. We ran until well past sunset when our legs were burning and hunger clawed at my stomach. Can you keep going without sleeping? I asked as I wolfed down water and some canned beef. For a few hours at least, Max replied. I nodded at him and we picked our guns up and resumed running. It was nearly three in the morning when we stopped, and only because the trail had become too dangerous to run on in the dark. We had passed Blackwater and, in my estimation, would reach the station by noon tomorrow as long as we didn't sleep too long. Two hours of sleep. I'll take the first watch, I said, catching my breath and pointing at the ground behind Max. He didn't need to be told twice and threw himself down, falling asleep immediately. I struggled to keep myself awake, pacing the perimeter of the clearing we were in, and chain-smoking the cigarettes I had left. I nudged Max awake after two hours, and I laid down, falling immediately asleep. I woke to the feel of sun on my face. That's not good, I thought to myself as I bolted upright from the ground. Max had fallen asleep against a tree. We had slept way longer than we should have. I got up and threw a splash of water into Max's face, waking him up with a start. Get up! I yelled, at which Max jumped to his feet and lifted his gun. Without telling him, he grasped what had happened, as I could see the fear spreading subtly across his face. We began to run again, but after not fifteen minutes heard a distant howl echo out of the forest far behind us. The fear is not mine. The fear is not mine, I repeated to myself mentally over and over as we ran. The howls were beginning to grow more frequent and even worse, closer, the longer we ran. 
By noon, I figured we were almost back to the station. That's when the howling broke out from far too close. I stopped where I was, turned, and cocked my rifle. What are you doing? Max yelled as he spun to look at me. They're too close and too fast. We won't beat them running, I said through ragged breaths as I raised my gun to point into the woods. Max stopped, looked at me for a moment, and coming around to what I was saying, readied his rifle as well. A light mist was clinging to the floor of the lake wash, and the forest was dead silent as we stood side by side, guns trained on the trail we had just come from. The only thing that could be heard was our heavy, rhythmic breathing. As quickly as the silence had settled, it was ruptured again by a howling, snarling creature that came sprinting out of the underbrush. It was massive, probably eight feet tall if it wasn't hunched over, rippling with muscles. It had the head of some sort of mangy, evil dog, and red eyes that betrayed a terrible, primal hunger. It had far too many teeth for a normal dog, and the tongue that lolled from its mouth was yellow, red, and black from the fat, blood, and marrow it had been feeding on. Max managed to lose a shot at it, and it connected with the beast's shoulder, causing it to stagger slightly in its forward sprint. It was moving faster than anything I had ever seen, and leaped the last twenty feet to land directly on Max and send him sprawling to the ground. It snarled at me, looking like it was ready to pounce, but it snapped its attention away when Max sank a knife into its side. The extra second was all I needed. I raised my rifle and put a bullet directly through the head of the beast, which caused it to freeze, totter for a moment, and collapse to the ground next to Max. I helped him back to his feet, but he was in a bad condition. The beast's claws had raked him all along the side of his body, and the impact of the tackle had clearly broken a number of his ribs. I slung his rifle back over his shoulder and draped his arm over my shoulder, beginning to stagger the two of us back toward the station. Nice shot, Max smiled weakly as he attempted to wipe the beast blood off his face. Thanks. We listened, and while we could still hear some howling, it sounded far off again. I hoped that this one had been a lone hunter from the pack, and we would have enough time to reach the station. We did. It took almost another two hours as we staggered along, but eventually, we reached the station. I had radioed back to the other ranger units on the lay a few hours back that our situation was lost, and the Ironsides and Headless Men were now moving north in full force to support us. They said they would rendezvous with us at the ranger station, but I knew that would take almost a full day. Max died. His breathing had grown rapid and shallow and I'm guessing he drowned in his own blood based on how much he eventually puked up. There wasn't time for a burial. I found the explosives. The pack. It's very close now. I'm thinking they'll reach the station in the next half hour, if I'm lucky. But I have the explosives. They won't know what hit them. For the first time in my life, though, I don't think the fear is primal or instinctual or whatever anymore. I think the fear is mine. Captain Collins, the last night crawler, Living in a remote, rural town is quite the experience, especially when your home is nestled against the backdrop of dense woods that are as ominous as they are beautiful. Life here is far from the city's hustle and bustle, nestled amongst undulating hills and winding dirt roads. The sweet-smelling air, painted with notes of fresh pine, offers a tranquil sense of solitude, one I've come to appreciate over the years. It's the kind of place where everybody knows everyone else. We're a tight-knit community helping each other through the hard winters, 
celebrating together in the bright summers. There's a special sort of camaraderie born out of living isolated from the rest of the world. It's peaceful, idyllic even, until you remember the woods. The woods have always been a constant presence, like an unspoken character in the story of our town. Growing up, we've all ventured there, some of us to hunt, others for leisurely strolls, and some of us just to escape the mundanity of small-town life. And like every character, the woods have a story too, one that no one is comfortable talking about, one that lingers in the air like an uninvited specter. Our town has tales. You know, the kind shared in hushed whispers on moonlit nights, or around the campfire, their frightful tones softened by the glow of the dancing flames. Yet amongst all these stories, one particular tale has refused to fade into the background. The incident that happened around 30 years ago, the story of David and his three friends' camping trip in the woods. David was like any other teenager at the time, bright-eyed, adventurous, eager to explore the mysteries of the forest that lay beyond the edge of our town. It was supposed to be an exciting adventure, a fun-filled camping trip, but it turned out to be a nightmare that would haunt David for the rest of his life. I remember David before the incident. He was a boisterous boy, always brimming with energy, and the sort of infectious laughter that could light up even the gloomiest of rooms. But the David who returned from the woods was not the same. He came back with a phantom arm and a chilling tale that transformed our town's perception of the woods forever. I was just a kid when David shared his story with me, his hollow eyes devoid of the spark they once held his voice a somber whisper that held the weight of his terrifying encounter. I remember shivering, not from the chill of the evening, but from the cold dread that his tale ignited within me. Since then, the woods took on a different persona, its once inviting trails now a horrifying labyrinth leading to a predatory menace. David's story was our town's secret, a horrific chapter in our history that we collectively decided to tuck away. Yet, it has managed to alter our lives subtly, turning our peaceful forest into a reminder of a dreadful past. Even now, as I look out at the woods from my porch, the trees swaying gently in the evening breeze, I can't help but feel an unsettling chill creeping up my spine. It's silent, almost too silent, as though holding its breath, keeping a secret, the secret of David's horrifying encounter. It's beautiful, serene, and yet, I can't shake off the feeling that we're not alone, that something is lurking in the woods, watching, waiting. Everyone in town knew of David's story, but only a few of us had the privilege of hearing it from the man himself. A privilege, or perhaps a curse. The story went like this. David, a lively teenager back then, planned a summer camping trip with his three best friends. Their preparations filled with laughter and excitement. They packed their gear and set off into the woods, blissfully unaware of the nightmare they were about to walk into. David always had an intuition about things. That summer night was no different. As they huddled around their campfire, he felt a certain unease. Something was off. He could sense it. He shared his fear with his friends, who at first dismissed it as just nerves, but it didn't take long for them to feel it too. There was a figure in the darkness beyond their campfire, lurking at the edges of their vision. David described it as a fleeting shadow, humanoid in shape, that would disappear and reappear without a trace. Initially subtle, it soon became unnerving, a constant presence that pricked at their nerves and stirred fear within them. To stay or to flee was the question. The decision was made for them when the figure broke its rhythm, starting to move frantically, 
as though circling them like a predator closing in on its prey. David's gut screamed at him to run. His decision to run was instinctive as his legs pushed off the ground, propelling him away from the campsite, his friend's cries echoing in his ears. The creature didn't chase him. Instead, it emerged from the shadows, unveiling itself to his friends still huddled around the campfire. He described the sight of the creature in vivid, chilling detail, a recounting that would send shivers down the spine of anyone who heard it. Humanoid, it wore common clothing, but its face was twisted and grotesque. The eyes, bloodshot and circular, were where the mouth should be, and its mouth, with sharp yellow teeth, was an upside-down grin that looked more like a hideous frown. Its hands ended in pointed, dagger-like nails that it used to tear into his friends. Their screams echoed through the forest, a chilling symphony of agony and terror. David was rooted to the spot, paralyzed by the scene unfolding before him until the creature locked eyes with him. His survival instincts kicked in once more, and he broke into a desperate run again. However, the creature was fast, reaching him in seconds. It clawed into his arm, its nails digging deep into his flesh, causing him to scream in pain. But in its zeal, the creature dug in too deep, and as David pulled away in a desperate attempt to escape, his arm ripped off from his body. David ran until he collapsed from blood loss. He woke up in a hospital bed, his life saved by an early morning runner who found him unconscious by the trail. The rescue crew that went searching for his friends found their bodies, or what was left of them, arranged in a grisly pattern around the extinguished campfire. David survived, but the encounter left him a broken man, his tale instilled a fear within us all that transformed the way we saw the woods. It wasn't just a forest anymore, it was a place where something unholy resided. A place where a simple camping trip turned into a deadly encounter. Following David's horrifying encounter, the perception of our quaint little town underwent a seismic shift. The woods that once held the charm of adventure and tranquility now bore the eerie mark of an unknown terror. David's account painted such a vivid picture that it was almost impossible to shake off. The face with an upside-down configuration and the events of that horrific night were burnt into our collective memory. Some tried to dismiss David's story as the product of trauma, a coping mechanism born out of severe shock. They argued that the tragic event caused him to fabricate this horrific creature as a way to explain the gruesome death of his friends. While these explanations might have offered some comfort to those who desperately wanted to believe in them, the reality was that something dreadful had happened in the woods that night. David, once a jovial and carefree spirit, was now a shell of his former self. His face, always etched with a perpetual grimace, reflected the deep-seated pain he carried within him. His lost arm was a cruel reminder of the hellish nightmare he survived. He spent most of his days alone, sitting on his porch, his single hand clutching the rail tightly, his gaze locked onto the edge of the woods. He never set foot in the forest again, and no one else did either, not at least when the sun went down. Life in the town went on, but with a new set of unwritten rules. No one ventured into the woods after dusk, and the town's children grew up listening to the horrifying tale, whispered in hushed tones around fireplaces and during sleepovers. Camping trips were canceled, and even daytime walks in the woods became less frequent. As the years rolled by, David's tale started to fade into a mere legend. Yet, the woods retained their ominous aura. As a child, I grew up listening to this tale, first from David, then from the others. It gave me chills, 
made me look over my shoulder during my frequent runs into the woods. I was an adult now, a firm believer in rationality, and I chose not to be scared by an old story. I still ran through those woods, cherishing the silence, the fresh air, the comforting rustle of the leaves. Yet there were moments when I felt a strange sensation. It was as if I was being watched, a shiver that ran down my spine, a feeling that I could never fully shake off. It seemed like the town's dark secret was now just a part of our lives, an unwelcome shadow that lurked in the periphery. We had made peace with its existence, acknowledging it but never confronting it. We continued living our quiet lives, respecting the woods' unspoken boundary and the chilling tale that guarded it. For years I thought it was all a myth, an old wives' tale designed to scare children. But one evening, I would experience something that would force me to revisit David's horrifying encounter, making me question my beliefs, and plunging me back into the terror of that long-forgotten story. I was working on a demanding project that day. Hours slipped by unnoticed as I engrossed myself in work, completely forgetting about my daily run. By the time I managed to pull myself away, the sun was already making its descent, drenching the sky in hues of orange and purple. I decided to go for a quick run anyway, though it was much later than I usually preferred. The woods had a different aura in the evening, a peaceful tranquility that washed over me like a soothing balm. There was a part of me that tried to whisper warnings. Decades-old tales murmured caution into my ear, but I dismissed them. I was a rational adult, I told myself, not a frightened child listening to ghost stories. With a determined resolve, I stepped into the twilight-lit woods. As I jogged along the trail, the familiar sounds of the forest greeted me. The rustling leaves, the gentle breeze, the faint chirping of birds. I felt at peace, the anxieties of the day slowly melting away with each step I took. The trees seemed to form a protective wall on either side, their branches swaying gently in the breeze. As I pushed myself to pick up the pace, I realized the familiar sounds around me had gradually ceased. The birds were no longer chirping, the rustling leaves had fallen silent. An eerie hush had descended upon the woods, as if nature itself had taken a breath, plunging the world into silence. A shiver ran down my spine as the tranquility I had previously found soothing now felt ominously menacing. I tried to convince myself it was nothing, but my heart began pounding in my chest. A sense of unease was slowly creeping up on me. The stories I had dismissed as childhood folklore began replaying in my head. The feeling of being watched, of being pursued, wrapped around me like a suffocating blanket. But it wasn't until I reached the end of the trail, the safety of my town within sight, that I truly felt the prickling fear. In my peripheral vision, I noticed a figure lurking in the tree line, a human-like shape, yet something about it was terribly wrong. My breath hitched in my throat as I dared to glance in the figure's direction, praying it was just my imagination playing tricks on me. What I saw froze me in my tracks. There, staring at me from the tree line, was a figure just as David had described. Its face was obscured in the dimming light, but there was an unmistakable peculiarity about it. It looked inverted, a grotesque distortion of what a human face should be. Just as I emerged from the woods, the figure vanished into the darkness, but not before I saw a frown on its face. A chilling realization hit me like a punch in the gut. The face was upside down. In that moment, I knew the tale wasn't just an old legend. It was something more, something real. 
The woods were not just woods, but a home to a terrible secret, and I had just come face to face with it. Fear coursed through my veins, threatening to consume me whole, but I knew I had to keep it together. For myself, for the town, and to figure out what truly lurks in the woods next to my remote town. Over the following days, my encounter with the creature from the woods dominated my every thought. It felt like a haunting dream, yet the terror I experienced was all too real. It had seen me, and I had seen it. A grotesque visage from a terrifying tale that I could no longer dismiss as mere folklore. The undeniable truth was that there was indeed something in our woods. I decided to confide in someone about my encounter. It seemed only right that the person should be David, the sole survivor of that tragic night. I found him in his usual spot, overlooking the forest from his balcony. As I relayed my experience, his face, already weathered with age and marked with sorrow, grew even paler. His eyes widened with a terror that mirrored my own. It was clear to him, and now to me, that the creature from his past was still haunting our town. The atmosphere in the town shifted following our discussion. I could see fear etched on the faces of my neighbors, whispers about the creature becoming more frequent. No one dared to enter the woods, not even during daylight. The woods that once teemed with life now stood ominously quiet, a chilling reminder of the secret we were harboring. Yet despite the fear that consumed our town, there was a shared understanding that we had to face this situation. We couldn't let the terror control our lives. We sought help from various sources, the police, paranormal investigators, local hunters, and anyone who could provide us with some form of help or relief. However, the woods remained as impenetrable as ever, its secret kept well guarded. One evening, as I lay awake grappling with fear and uncertainty, I felt a chill creep into my room. The silence of the night was suddenly broken by the rustling of leaves, followed by a faint echo of a human-like shriek. It was a sound so guttural, so inhuman that it sent icy chills down my spine. My heart pounded against my chest as I realized the source of the sound, the woods. Pulling my curtain aside, I looked out of my window that faced the forest. My blood turned to ice at the sight that met my eyes. Under the ghostly light of the moon, at the edge of the woods, stood the figure I dreaded the most. Its bloodshot eyes were fixated on the town, its crooked grin more menacing than ever. The creature's haunting stare seemed to penetrate the distance between us, its focus resting directly on my window. In the terrifying silence of the night, I was once again face to face with the creature from the woods. The creature that had ripped a group of teenagers apart. The creature that had terrified an entire town into silence. The creature that was now standing at the edge of the town, looking right at me. In the pale moonlight, the twisted features of the creature seemed even more grotesque. Its grotesque grin seemed to widen, and just as quickly as it appeared, it retreated back into the woods, disappearing into the darkness. Its message, however, was clear. It was watching us, waiting, lurking in the darkness of our woods. And it was far from done. The silence of the night returned, but the terrifying truth hung in the air, filling my room, my house, and our town. The creature in the woods was real, and it had returned. Growing up in Nova Scotia, you're as likely to find a diamond in a coal mine as you are something to do on a Saturday night. That's the saying in our town, anyway. I was 16, 
and my best friend Marie and I had made it our personal mission to disprove that theory. Our town, wedged between dense evergreen forests and seemingly endless miles of rough Atlantic coastline, was an old mining outpost that seemed to have been forgotten by time. The homes were a patchwork of old and new, their exteriors telling stories of the generations who lived and died here. But for us, the most intriguing relic of the past was the old train station. The grandeur of the station had long since faded, its once majestic architecture now weathered and worn. The train tracks, once alive with the rumble of mighty steam engines, were now silent, only echoing the distant whispers of the past. It stood as a solemn monument to a bygone era, its final train car converted into a food bank that fed the less fortunate among us. Marie and I spent countless afternoons wandering around, our footsteps echoing on the platform, our voices lost amidst the rusted iron and crumbling bricks. Somehow, the stark contrast of the station's history and its present use served as a reminder of the impermanence of life. Our lives were simple, but we loved our small town with a deep-seated affection only those born and raised in a close-knit community can understand. We felt safe in our routine, in the predictability of our days. On those rare, clear nights, Marie and I would sneak out of our houses for a late-night stroll. Bundled up in our coats, we'd walk until the town's lights were mere specks in the distance, our conversations a mix of teenage angst, secret dreams, and the latest town gossip. Those walks, the stars above us, the town behind us, were an act of defiance against the seemingly uneventful life in Nova Scotia. The forest, with its towering pines and hidden pathways, was our sanctuary, a place that held secrets and mysteries we loved to explore. The rustling leaves whispered stories in our ears, and the hidden critters watched as we ventured into their world, their eyes glinting in the moonlight. We always ended up at the food bank, standing in front of the old train car. There was something about it, an indescribable pull that drew us back time and time again. I'd run my fingers over the peeling paint, my mind filled with images of the train in its heyday, chugging along, filled with hope and anticipation. Yes, life in Nova Scotia was predictable. It was comfortable. That is, until one fateful night when we discovered that not all the town's mysteries were charming folktales and harmless childhood adventures. Little did we know that the night's journey would take us far beyond our simple town, into the heart of a nightmare, face to face with something that wasn't quite animal, nor human, and far from anything we could have ever imagined. From that night onward, our lives changed, and so did Nova Scotia, though they didn't know it. We knew. We knew what lurked in the darkness, and it was nothing any soul in Nova Scotia would want to meet. Nova Scotia had a knack for keeping its secrets hidden, buried deep beneath its landscape and within the hearts of its people. Marie and I were about to stumble upon one such secret that would unearth a terror unlike anything we could have imagined. Our explorations usually ended at the dilapidated train station, but that night, a strange unease had settled over the place. We were there, just as we always were, standing in front of the old train car, its worn-out exterior gleaming under the feeble street lamp. However, something felt different. An unusual chill hung in the air, and I could see goosebumps form on Marie's arms despite the warmth of the summer night. Even the usually comforting chirps of crickets seemed strangely foreboding, adding an eerie soundtrack to the night. We should have turned back, and should have heeded the signs. Instead, curiosity overcame caution. 
We ventured further into the old train car, the creak of the heavy metal door sending shivers down my spine, the old dusty seats, the discarded food cans and utensils, and the lingering scent of rust and decay filled the space, a haunting testament to the passage of time. As we shuffled deeper into the train car, our flashlight beams danced on the neglected interior. That's when we noticed it, a small door at the back, cleverly camouflaged with the wall's worn-out paint. It was a door we had never seen before, a door that hadn't been there all those times we had visited. We exchanged a glance, a silent agreement passing between us, and we approached the door. The door creaked open, revealing a small, darkened compartment filled with dust and cobwebs. The air was musty, heavy with the scent of neglect. We shone our flashlights around, their beams catching on something that made our hearts skip a beat. An old, leather-bound journal lay there, its pages yellowed with age. I reached out and carefully picked it up, my hands shaking slightly. As I opened the journal, we squinted at the dim light illuminating the faded ink. The entries were a fascinating account of the town's past, revealing a darker side of Nova Scotia that we never knew existed. It spoke of a creature, neither human nor animal, believed to haunt the town and the surrounding forest. The creature was described as a shadowy figure, capable of shape-shifting, with glowing red eyes that would terrify even the bravest of souls. It was said to prey on the weak and the lost, turning their most profound fears against them. As we read, a chill ran down my spine. The forest, our beloved sanctuary, suddenly seemed ominous, the darkness outside not so welcoming. I could see the fear mirrored in Marie's eyes, reflecting my own. This was no ordinary tale. It felt real, too real. The silence of the night was suddenly broken by a distant rustling in the forest, followed by an inhuman growl that echoed through the silent town. It was unlike anything we had ever heard, and it made our blood run cold. We bolted from the train car, the journal clutched tightly in my hand, the echoes of the growl following us. Little did we know that the nightmare was only just beginning. Ever since the discovery of the journal, sleep had eluded me. I tossed and turned in my bed, the eerie words of the journal echoing in my head. Marie and I had agreed not to speak of it, but it had already seeped into our minds, painting our once peaceful town with a horrifying hue. As days turned into nights, a growing sense of unease had descended upon us. The chirping of the crickets, the whispering of the wind, the rustling of leaves, all of them held an eerie undertone that hadn't been there before. One particular night, I lay awake, staring at the ceiling, when I heard it, a distant rustling outside. My heart pounded in my chest, a sense of dread washing over me. I hesitated, debating whether to look outside. My curiosity, however, won over my fear, and I cautiously crept towards the window. I peered out, my eyes straining in the darkness. The rustling grew louder, closer. Just when I was about to dismiss it as a trick of my imagination, I saw it. A shadowy figure was moving at the edge of the forest, its shape shifting as it moved, just as the journal had described. I gasped, my heart pounding in my chest. I fumbled for my phone, but in my panic it slipped from my hand, clattering onto the floor. I dared not move to retrieve it, my eyes still fixed on the horrifying spectacle outside. The figure moved closer, and I saw them, two glowing red eyes that bore into my soul. I stumbled back, my blood turning to ice. Just then, my dog, Bruno, growled low in his throat, his hackles raised. He seemed to sense the presence of the creature, 
his instincts alerting him to the danger. Summoning all the courage I had, I grabbed my phone and dialed Marie. She picked up on the first ring, her voice frantic. I see it too, she whispered, her voice shaking with fear. We were both silent, the reality of our situation sinking in. We knew then that we were dealing with something beyond our comprehension, something that couldn't be brushed off as a mere myth. The fear was palpable, and I could feel it seeping into my bones. But along with fear, a strange determination settled within me. I had spent my life loving this town, its people, its tranquility. I couldn't stand by and watch as an unknown terror threatened to shatter it. I had to do something. I could hear Marie echoing my thoughts on the other end of the line. The creature, or whatever it was, had revealed itself to us, the children of Nova Scotia. We knew it was real. We knew it was dangerous. And as the dawn broke and the creature retreated into the darkness, we made a pact. We would uncover the truth about this creature and, if possible, save our town from the terror that had descended upon it. With a newfound resolve, we hung up. The fear was still there, but now it was overshadowed by our determination. We had stumbled upon a dreadful secret, and now it was up to us to face it. In the clear light of day, the horror of the previous night seemed like a distant nightmare. But Marie and I knew better. We knew that once dusk fell, our small town would once again be under the shadow of a sinister entity. We had to act, and fast. The public library was our first stop. We believed the key to unraveling the mystery behind the creature lay in the past. The dusty old building, filled with forgotten lore and stories, offered our best chance at finding the answers we sought. We arrived early, the librarian giving us a surprised but warm greeting. Her brows furrowed with curiosity as we asked for historical records of the town. She led us to a section filled with ancient newspapers, historical documents, and town chronicles. Surrounded by dust-covered documents and the comforting smell of old paper, we began our search. We pored over the yellowed pages, our eyes scanning the text for any mention of the creature or the old fisherman. Hours passed, but our determination didn't wane. Then, in a newspaper article from 1897, we found our first lead. The article described the mysterious disappearance of a local fisherman, eerily similar to what was written in the journal. A cold shiver ran down my spine. The journal's stories were more than mere folklore. They were a documented part of Nova Scotia's history. The weight of our discovery sank in. Our small town had been living under a shadow of fear for more than a century, and it was now upon our young shoulders to cast it away. Marie and I decided to split up to cover more ground. I took the newspaper articles while she dived into the town chronicles. We were racing against time. The setting sun outside the library windows reminded us that another night was fast approaching. As the day wore on, we found more accounts of strange disappearances, unexplained events, and sightings of the creature. Every piece of evidence seemed to point back to the same spot, the old fisherman's house. We decided to visit the house next, even though the thought filled me with dread. As we left the library, a sense of anticipation hung in the air. As we approached the old, weather-beaten house, the sun was setting, painting the sky with hues of orange and red. The eerie silence surrounding the house sent chills down my spine, but I knew that I had to step into the heart of fear to find the truth. Standing there, in front of the house, the reality of our situation struck me hard. The house, the journal, the library records. 
It was as if we were characters in a horror story that was centuries old. But this was our town, our story, and we had to see it through to the end. Taking a deep breath, I reached out and turned the knob of the front door. As it creaked open, a blast of cold air hit me. Swallowing my fear, I stepped inside, Marie close behind me. Unbeknownst to us, this old house held more secrets than we could have ever imagined. As we entered the house, the smell of age and neglect hit us. The air was stale, heavy with the scent of rotting wood and mildew. It was an eerie silence that filled the place, making every creak of the old wooden floor echo ominously. The house was surprisingly large, filled with artifacts and objects that bore the mark of time. We moved cautiously, exploring room by room. The fading light from outside barely pierced the dirt-caked windows, and the shadows within the house seemed alive, shrouding its secrets from our prying eyes. In what seemed to be the main living room, we found an old study area, a worn-out desk, lined with ancient maritime maps, charts, and journals, took up one corner. With a shared look, we realized that we had found a gold mine of information. As we examined the desk, a piece of parchment slipped out from between two books. It was a sketch, depicting a monstrous creature rising from the sea. The image matched the description from the journal and the stories, chilling me to the bone. Beside the sketch, in the same scratchy handwriting from the journal, were notes. It spoke of a ritual, a pact with the sea, performed by the old fisherman to appease the creature and protect the town. His death, however, had broken the pact, releasing the creature from its bindings. The reality of it sent a shiver down my spine. The creature was not just a tale. It was real, and we were facing an ancient entity bound by rituals and blood. The weight of our discovery bore down on us, but there was no turning back now. We spent the rest of the evening poring over the maps, trying to locate the spot where the ritual had taken place. The fisherman had marked it on one of his maps, a small cove hidden by the rocky cliffs. Determined, we gathered all the documents that we thought might help us understand the ritual. The sun had already sunk beneath the horizon, and the dreaded night had begun to settle in. But we were no longer helpless. We had a plan. Before we left, we decided to search the house one more time for any useful tools or weapons. In a rusty old chest, we found a beautifully crafted dagger, its handle adorned with sea creature motifs. It felt cold to the touch and radiated an uncanny energy. I couldn't shake off the feeling that this dagger was more than just a decorative piece. It felt as though it was waiting, ready to play its part in our unfolding drama. We left the fisherman's house with a newfound purpose. The shadows were deepening, and we could sense the creature stirring in the depths. As we made our way back to town, preparing for the most daunting night of our lives, I couldn't help but feel a strange mix of dread and resolve. We were about to face an ancient terror, armed with nothing but our courage and the fisherman's knowledge passed down through his notes. I couldn't predict what the night held for us, but I knew we wouldn't back down. This was our fight, and we would face it together. The path to the cove was treacherous, the jagged cliff seeming to reach out for us in the dim moonlight. The roar of the sea grew louder with every step, the rhythmic crash of the waves now accompanied by a low, haunting moan. Our hearts pounded in our chests as we reached the rocky edge of the cove. From here the sea stretched out into an endless, dark abyss. There was a palpable tension in the air, as if the sea itself was holding its breath, waiting for the inevitable. With a shared nod, we began the ritual. 
our voices echoed out over the sea, repeating the ancient words that the fishermen had written down. I held the dagger tightly, its cold metal offering a grim sort of comfort. As the ritual progressed, the sea began to churn. Waves crashed against the cliffs with a violence that was both awe-inspiring and terrifying. It felt like the world was being pulled from under our feet, and we clung to each other, desperately continuing the chant. Then, in an explosion of water and power, the creature rose from the depths. Its towering form eclipsed the moon, casting a monstrous shadow on the water. It was more terrifying than anything we had imagined. Its eyes, glowing with an unholy light, bore into us, and its roar echoed in the night, a deafening declaration of its fury. Summoning all my courage, I held the dagger up high. It seemed to pulse in my hand, responding to the creature's presence. The ancient words of the ritual echoed in my mind, and I lunged forward, stabbing the dagger into the ground. The reaction was immediate. A bright, eerie glow erupted from the dagger, shooting up towards the creature. It writhed and roared in pain, thrashing against the beam of light that now bound it. The ground shook beneath us, and the sea raged, mirroring the creature's fury. We had no choice but to continue the chant, pushing through our fear. The light from the dagger grew stronger, a beacon of hope in the terror-filled night. But the creature wasn't going down without a fight. With one final monstrous roar, it thrashed in the water, causing a massive wave to hurtle towards us. The world turned into a blur of water and chaos. I could hear my own screams merging with the creature's roar and the deafening crash of the wave. Then, with a shattering force, the wave hit us, knocking me off my feet and pulling me into the cold, raging sea. Darkness consumed me as I was tossed and turned in the icy depths. Struggling against the pull, I tried to reach the surface, but the sea was relentless. My lungs screamed for air, but there was only water. The last thing I remember was the glow of the dagger in the distance, the light dimming as the sea closed in around me. My consciousness faded as the terrifying figure of the creature loomed over the surface, its roar echoing in the depths, a chilling reminder of the ancient terror that lurked in our town. As I succumbed to the icy darkness, one thought remained. The creature was free, and the terror was far from over. Loneliness washed over me as I watched my friends depart. The worn-out barstool groaned under my weight. My only company the sound of muffled laughter, the clinking of glass, and the distant hum of a worn-out jukebox. My heart pounded, a restless symphony in my chest. My gaze stuck on the yellow shirt at the end of the bar. There she was, a petite brunette with a sly smile, her yellow shirt standing out like a beacon in the dim light. Maybe she had looked my way. Maybe she hadn't. In my head she had. I could feel my palms getting sweaty. I told myself, tonight was the night. Tonight I would conquer my shyness. I would talk to her. Another round, please, I told the bartender, pointing to her table, a silent prayer on my lips. But when he asked who the shots were for, I choked. For me, I blurted out. Great, six shots, for me. I could see the amusement in his eyes as he slid the glasses towards me. My cowardice echoed in the clink of the filled shot glasses. Then came the cruel twist of fate. I could feel her friend's gaze on me, followed by whispers, then hushed laughter. I looked away, my face burning. My only solace was the bathroom. I retreated, my heart aching. By the time I returned, 
They were gone. The only thing left was the untouched round of shots. I looked outside. The rain was hitting the bar's wooden door hard. The forecast had predicted it would drop below freezing, and my car was definitely staying behind. I picked up the first shot glass. A drink or six might help with the cold, I thought, and perhaps numb the sting of rejection. Bottoms up, I announced to the remaining patrons, my words slurring a bit. One by one, I downed the shots, each gulp echoing in the almost empty bar. The onlookers gave half-hearted cheers, their amusement at my situation evident. The alcohol warmed my throat, but it didn't warm me. It just made the world spin a bit more. I don't remember how I ended up outside, the chill biting through my jacket. I just knew I had to get home, one way or another. So I started my long, treacherous walk through Bayview Woods. The woods were dense and dark, and tonight they were cold and wet. As I staggered along the path, I could barely see the roots reaching out like gnarled hands, ready to trip the unsuspecting passerby. I tugged my jacket over my head, trying to shield myself from the sleet. As I walked on, my surroundings began to blur. The familiar landmarks were replaced by an unfamiliar wilderness. I was lost. I squinted, trying to make sense of my surroundings. It was then that I saw it, a spot of yellow in the sea of darkness, the girl from the bar, alone, in the middle of the woods. Hey, what are you doing here? I called out, forgetting for a moment the sting of rejection. The alcohol made me bold, or perhaps it was the relief of seeing another human being in these haunted woods. Little did I know, things were about to take a turn for the worse. A flicker of concern gripped me. Why was she here? I peered through my fogged glasses, the precipitation morphing her figure into an eerie apparition, but there was no mistaking the yellow shirt. Ma'am, there are bears and wolves in these woods. You should not be out here alone, I found myself saying, the absurdity of my words hitting me as soon as they left my mouth. Here I was, in the same situation, and yet I had the audacity to warn her. Can I help you find your way back? I offered, squinting through the sleet, trying to make out her features. It felt like the right thing to do, especially after my awkward display back at the bar. But she didn't reply. Instead, she slowly turned to face me, her movements eerily slow and deliberate. I shuffled closer, my heart pounding in my chest. Something wasn't right. Are we back on the path? I think I'm a bit lost myself. I tried again, hoping to coax some reaction from her. I removed my glasses, the blur of my surroundings intensifying as the cold droplets stung my eyes. She just stood there, staring at me with an odd mix of boredom and amusement. It was an unnerving sight in the otherwise desolate woods. The silence between us stretched, and I found myself stuck, unsure of what to do. Then she dropped to her knees, her movements uncannily smooth in the slippery muck. She started to use her hands as legs, and a chill ran down my spine. This was not normal. I tried to say something, to ask her to stop, but my words slurred into incoherent mumbles. She didn't seem to care. Instead, she started charging at me, her movements mimicking an animal more than a human. Panic surged through me. I turned and ran, the woods a blur as I sprinted through the underbrush, branches slashing at me, the sound of her pursuit echoing in my ears. I threw everything I could behind me, twigs, rocks, anything to slow her down, but it seemed nothing could deter her. I could hear a deep growl behind me, primal and terrifying, just before I felt a weight crash into me. She pinned me to the ground, her eyes wild and frenzied. Please, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Please, I have a family, I pleaded. 
Her features were grotesque up close, her teeth unnaturally yellow, her breath foul, and her nails felt sharp against my skin. It was then I realized that begging was futile. She wasn't human, at least not at this moment. My mind raced, looking for an escape, and then my hands found a rock, cold and heavy against my palm. I didn't think, I just reacted, bringing it down hard against her skull. The crack was sickening. She looked at me one last time, confusion marring her bloody face, and then she collapsed. I lay there for a moment, catching my breath, the reality of what just happened sinking in. I scrambled to my feet looking around wildly. There was nothing but the sleet and the darkness, and I had to get home, now. I took off running, leaving the unconscious girl behind. I awoke the next day with the sharp taste of bile in my mouth, my head throbbing with a merciless hangover. The previous night's events seemed like a dream, a terrible nightmare shaped by alcohol-induced hallucinations. But as I moved, my body protested with sharp reminders of the night, scratches and bruises that painted a macabre picture. I tried to convince myself that it was just a dream, just a byproduct of too much alcohol and not enough sense. Yet my body bore evidence of a chase through the woods, of an encounter with something, someone inhuman. I stared at my hands, my mind replaying the feel of the rock and the crunch that followed. Could it really have happened? My thoughts were interrupted by the relentless buzzing of my phone. My friends, concerned about my whereabouts and well-being, were eager to know how I was. I brushed them off with generic responses, my mind far from our usual banter. I knew what I had to do. I had to go back, confirm whether it was real or just a figment of my imagination. My heart pounded in my chest as I left my apartment, the sunlight a stark contrast to the eerie darkness of the night before. The woods were quiet, peaceful even. It seemed impossible that the peaceful scenery could be the same one where the horrifying event took place. I found the path again, tracing my steps from the night before. The brush bore evidence of my frantic run, broken branches and upturned rocks. And then I found it, the spot where I remembered the encounter happening. But there was nothing there. No body, no blood, just the steady patter of raindrops against the leaves. It was as if the events of the previous night had been swept away, erased as neatly as if they had never happened. I searched the area, my heart pounding with relief and confusion. If it was a dream, it was incredibly vivid. But if it was real, where was the evidence? I spent the rest of the day trying to make sense of what had happened, flipping between the local news channels, scouring the internet for any report of a body found in the woods. But there was nothing. No mention of any incident, no hint of a mystery. My mind wandered to her, to the woman in yellow. Did I imagine her, or did she really exist? If she did, what was she? Was she really the monster I remembered, or was it all just a cruel trick of my mind, influenced by fear and alcohol? I was left with more questions than answers. The next few weeks were filled with restless nights and haunted days, a constant replay of the night that changed everything. I wanted answers. I wanted to understand what happened that night. But for now, all I had were memories and speculations. A bizarre encounter that seemed too strange to be real, but too vivid to be a dream. And a woman in a yellow shirt, who was either a figment of my imagination, or a being beyond comprehension. With the passing of weeks, life started to assume some semblance of normality again. The cuts healed, the bruises faded, 
and the terrifying events of that night began to recede into the shadows of my mind. My friends were supportive, even if they didn't know the full extent of what I was dealing with. Laughter slowly found its way back into my life, although my visits to the bar reduced drastically. One night, after a particularly grueling day at work, I found myself being coaxed back into a semblance of my old life. My friends convinced me to accompany them to our favorite bar, their persuasions blending with my own need for familiarity and respite. So back I went, to the scene of the beginning of my nightmare. The bar was the same, the same rough wooden decor, the same cheap beer, the same locals with their heartwarming and sometimes boisterous conversations. Everything seemed normal, familiar. The liquor burned down my throat. The camaraderie around me dulled the edge of the fear that had become my constant companion since that night. It was then that I saw it, a familiar flash of yellow weaving its way through the crowd. My heart stopped. My blood ran cold. It couldn't be. She was back, the brunette in the yellow shirt. But wasn't she? She took a seat at the bar, just like before, an amused smile playing on her lips. I could not tear my eyes away from her, a sense of dread mixing with an inexplicable curiosity. Was she real? Was she the same person who had terrified me that night? If so, how was she here? Our eyes met across the room. It was brief, fleeting, but unmistakable. That same sly smile, the same captivating gaze. My pulse hammered in my ears as she looked away, leaving me reeling. What did it mean? Was she an innocent woman, just enjoying her night, oblivious to the turmoil she was causing in me? Or was she something else, something far more sinister? I excused myself from my friends, making a beeline for the restroom. The walls seemed to close in on me as I splashed cold water on my face, trying to make sense of what was happening. I looked at myself in the mirror, a haunted face staring back at me. She was there. The woman in the yellow shirt was there, right outside, chatting and laughing as though she hadn't turned my world upside down weeks ago. How was this possible? I had no answers, only questions that seemed to grow and multiply with every passing minute. I took a deep breath, steadying myself. I had to face this. I had to know. I had to confront her. With a newfound determination, I stepped out of the restroom, my eyes immediately drawn to the yellow shirt at the bar. I had to find out. I needed to know if she was the monster that haunted my nightmares, or just an innocent bystander in my alcohol-fueled hallucinations. Either way, I could not run anymore. I was ready to face my fears, ready to find out the truth, whatever it may be. With my heart pounding in my chest, I slowly made my way towards her. Each step was like wading through a sea of uncertainty and fear, but I forced myself to move forward. The noise of the bar seemed to dim, a surreal quiet enveloping me as I neared her. She was engrossed in conversation with the bartender, her laughter sprinkling through the air. I took a moment to study her. Was this the same creature who had pursued me relentlessly through the woods? Who had pinned me to the ground and attacked me with such wild ferocity? It was difficult to reconcile the two images, the beast and the woman. As I approached, she turned, her eyes locking onto mine. That sly smile spread across her face again, and I felt a shiver run down my spine. She seemed to recognize me. Or did she? Was I reading too much into her gaze, projecting my own fears onto her? Gathering every ounce of courage, I took the last few steps and sat down beside her. Her gaze was unnerving. Those blue eyes seemed to pierce through me, seeing right into my soul. 
I felt a wave of unease wash over me, but I swallowed hard, forcing my voice out. Hi, I managed to utter, my voice slightly shaking. She turned towards me fully, her smile widening as she greeted me back. We engaged in the usual small talk, but her responses seemed normal, human even. I tried to delve deeper, to figure out if she had any recollection of that night. I asked her if she remembered me or the last time we were at this bar together. She shook her head, denying any knowledge of our previous encounter. Her denial left me with a sinking feeling. If she was not the creature from the woods, then who was? Was it all a hallucination? A product of my inebriated mind? Or was she lying, covering up the truth? With more questions than answers, I excused myself and returned to my friends, my mind a whirlwind of confusion. I glanced back at her periodically, trying to reconcile the gentlewoman at the bar with the beast in the woods. My friends noticed my distracted state and asked if I was okay. I managed a feeble smile and told them I was fine, though the lie tasted bitter in my mouth. The rest of the night was a blur. I left the bar feeling more lost than ever. The encounter with her had left me shaken, a fear gnawing at my insides. Was she the monster that hunted me? Or was I just a victim of my own intoxicated imagination? As I lay in bed that night, staring at the ceiling, I knew that there was only one way to find the answers I needed. I would have to return to the woods, to the place where it all began. I needed to confront my fears, to know the truth, no matter how terrifying it may be. It was late afternoon when I found myself at the entrance to Bayview Woods. I stood there for a while, stealing myself trying to gather the courage to step into the wilderness that had been the source of my nightmares for months. I took a deep breath and stepped in, the forest swallowing me whole. It felt eerily quiet, the soft rustling of leaves the only sound around. As I ventured deeper into the woods, the memory of that night flooded back, the cold sleet, the terrifying chase, and the monstrous encounter. I was drawn towards the place where I had last seen her, my feet moving almost on their own accord. My heart pounded in my chest, my palms were sweaty, and a shiver ran down my spine. Then, there it was, the very spot where we had fought. The scene was still imprinted in my mind, and as I glanced around, it was as if I could see it playing out all over again. The woman, or whatever she was, bearing down on me, the fear in her eyes as I struck her, and the silence that followed. But there was nothing there now, no signs of a struggle, no evidence of a body, just the eeriness of the woods and the rustling of leaves. I felt a chill run down my spine, my body alert and tense. Was I being watched? I turned around and my heart lurched. There she was, standing in the distance, her yellow shirt a stark contrast against the backdrop of the trees. Her blue eyes bore into mine, her expression unreadable. A fear gripped me, like a vice around my heart squeezing tighter and tighter. Before I could react, she started moving, her transformation swift and terrifying. Her shoulders lowered, her hands turning into legs, her movement becoming predatory, a low growl escaping her lips. My heart pounded in my chest as I backed away. This was no hallucination, no drunken fantasy. The woman from the bar, the creature from the woods, they were one and the same. She was upon me before I had the chance to turn around and run. I felt her weight pinning me down, her claws digging into my skin, her breath hot against my face. I screamed, but the woods swallowed the sound. I'm so sorry, I whimpered, my voice barely a whisper. Please. But it was too late. The last thing I saw were her eyes, 
those icy blue eyes, filled with a primal hunger. A grotesque smile twisted on her face, her teeth gleaming in the fading light. As the darkness descended upon me, one thought echoed in my mind. If you see someone standing still in the woods, you should probably not approach them. For in the quiet depth of the woods, monsters do dwell, wearing human smiles waiting to pounce on the unsuspecting.